Welcome to Hempire, a show dedicated to exploring the many potential therapeutic uses of the cannabis plant. Once a cornerstone of healing and now making a heroic comeback, cannabis has the potential to promote health and well-being, bring the body back to homeostasis, and foster recovery for a healthier way of living. Hempire focuses on a diverse range of serious health issues, presenting views ranging from those of patients and their loved ones to those of researchers and medical professionals. Hempire is presented by NanoSoul Pro. Supplementation through education. NanoSoulPro.com. Hey, it's Dr. Mitch Earlywine here at Hempire. Thanks so much for tuning in. As you folks know, I'm the author of Understanding Marijuana, and I pen the High Times column, Ask Dr. Mitch. I'm professor of psychology at the University of Albany, State University of New York. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've got some special guests today, including Brianna Altman from the Habits and Lifestyles Lab and Dr. Mallory Laughlin, a graduate of the Habits and Lifestyles Lab. Thanks so much to you two for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. So I know you get asked this a lot, but I was curious, uh, Dr. Laughlin, how does it feel or how does it happen that you end up being a woman in cannabis research? (laughs) Yeah, so it's actually kind of funny for me because when I went to graduate school, actually with you, Mitch, you were my mentor, graduate mentor. um, At the time, cannabis was not legal for rec anywhere. Um, And so we were still very much in a state of flux. It's almost hard to remember now that 10 years ago, um, you know, it was not as normative. Uh, in kind of general society to talk about cannabis as openly as it is today. Um, So when I first went to graduate school and told everybody it was to study cannabis, I think everybody was a bit shocked. Um, And so there was probably a bit more of a stigma than there is today. Interestingly, though, I learned very quick that the, you know, as I alluded to before, the, the front runners in cannabis research right now are largely disproportionately women. Um, So there are a lot of women, especially looking at the clinical applications of cannabis. And that's because the majority of folks who are using medical cannabis and just using cannabis at home to self-treat conditions are using it for psychiatric disorders. And unsurprisingly, um, women make up the majority of mental health providers in this country. So I think it makes sense that it's attracting a lot of women right now into cannabis, especially medical cannabis. Um, yeah, but how does it feel? I mean, it feels good. It feels good to look around at, at you know, my lab is disproportionately women. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun to be, you know, if you're doing applied clinical research, it's translational science. So the majority of what we're doing is reading preclinical data about animal models. And that historically has been predominantly men. So definitely a bridge area. I see cannabis as, um, as a field that is bringing a lot more women into science, which is exciting. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Laughlin. And Brianna, you're in your third year now. Did people react oddly when you said you were going to study cannabis? Yeah, I think so. So I started out studying alcohol, and I think that was a little bit less taboo at the time. But now that I'm in the field, I think overall people are really supportive, and I have a lot of great female role models. I'm surrounded by female researchers in the lab, which is great. Um, so it's just a really nice time to be in the field and be a woman in the field. I do really appreciate the approach to mental health you've both taken. And Brianna, I know you have some ayahuasca data. I realize it's a bit of an aside on a cannabis radio show, but I'd love to just get a feel for the findings you've published on that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we had this study where we were trying to understand who might prefer to use ayahuasca over other hallucinogens. So we surveyed a couple of people, about 150 people, um, about their experiences using ayahuasca as well as using other hallucinogens. And we were trying to develop a scale to better understand how ayahuasca is different from these more typical hallucinogens like LSD or MDMA or psilocybin mushrooms. And so what we found was that overall people reported that there were sort of these three main ways that ayahuasca differed. It promoted this um, more connectedness to nature and to other people. It had this ability to create more dramatic or terrifying negative thoughts. And then also those gastrointestinal effects that ayahuasca is sort of well known for. And so finding these three sort of sub-skills of areas where ayahuasca differed, we were wondering if we could use people's endorsements on them to predict whether or not they'd want to use ayahuasca again in the future or use other hallucinogens. So that first scale, that connectedness to other people and to nature, we found that that was really predictive of wanting to use ayahuasca again. People who reported feeling closer to others and to sort of the earth in general really wanted to use ayahuasca over other hallucinogens. The dramatic or terrifying negative thoughts, it wasn't really related to wanting to use ayahuasca or other hallucinogens in the future. But the aversive negative physical reactions, people typically wanted to avoid those and would choose other hallucinogens in the future to use to avoid those effects. Oh, I really appreciate you laying that down. And I know it's got uh, a lot of popularity now. I appreciate getting to tip our hat to the ayahuasca literature. And I know uh, each of you have a sister in the lab, Melissa Slavin, who's done some stuff on women's health more generally. Uh, Dr. Laughlin, do you happen to remember a PMS or uh, anything sort of specific to women's health and cannabinoids? Yeah, so I know that Dr. Slavin had done a lot of work specifically on, on women's health, looking at, at things like pain. Uh, inflammation, and it definitely is connected to what we're seeing in the preclinical data. So at least in preclinical models for CBD in particular, we're seeing a lot of tissue data suggesting that it's very, um, not even suggesting, we've got at this point quite a lot of data showing that CBD is anti-inflammatory, potentially some neuroprotective uh, effects, which would suggest that it could be very helpful for, um, you know, for pain associated with premenstrual uh, symptoms, for sure. Um, Even headaches, um, you know, to do with pain and especially inflammatory pain, neuropathic pain. We have data that low doses of THC could be helpful for that type of pain. Um, So we have some signals there. I say that in this kind of hesitant way just because it hasn't been tested. And as much as, you know, that can sometimes be a cop-out when folks like me get up there and say, well, we don't have the clinical data, this is, I think, maybe my soapbox a bit, is um, you see a lot right now in the media where people will read these animal studies um, of, say, CBD being really anti-inflammatory um, or low doses of THC being helpful for um, certain types of pain. And then folks run with it and say, science has proved it does this. And then you start hearing people saying, yes, I'm using it, and it is helping, helping for those conditions um, because we know that belief, especially for psychiatric, um, you know, symptoms is a really, really strong predictor of whether or not something's therapeutic. If you believe it works, it does. 
Um, and this has become deeply problematic for me attempting to run clinical trials for a lot of these conditions. So that's why I say I'm a bit hesitant to say that, you know, uh, definitely we think that this could be helpful for things like pain and, and inflammation, but um, we do have some early evidence. So hopefully we'll start to see more actual rigorous trials in those populations. Oh, I appreciate you rounding that out. And uh, truth be told, we've had Diane Fornbacher before uh, being pretty outspoken about how cannabis can be helpful for things like endometriosis and other stereotypically female disorders. I know you've each uh, alluded to some issues in depression. Dr. Laughlin, could you talk a bit about cannabinoids and depression? Yeah, really mixed results here. So everything is primarily at the preclinical level, unless you're looking at epi data. Again, this is a mood disorder, so really tough for us to look just at self-report. Um, we actually really need to look at a more, tra- the more traditional kind of drug development pathway if we're going to, um, you know, presume that it is going to be helpful for depression. And I say that because while we know a lot of people are using cannabis um, or different, you know, cannabinoid preparations to self-treat depression and, and reporting that it's very, very helpful, when we actually track people over time, we have several studies, longitudinal studies that follow these folks, their symptoms do appear to get worse over time. Um, at the same time, we have evidence from animal models that, and, and again, an animal model of depression is tough to generalize, <laughs> But, uh, but animal models um, suggest that CBD, high doses of CBD, um, could be have some antidepressant-like effects. And that's because we know that CBD, if it's able to get into the blood, if it's able to be metabolized, that, um, that it's working on serotonergic receptors. So similar mechanisms here to our traditional treatments of, um, of depression, like um, SSRIs. So... We've got some evidence suggesting it could be helpful. We will, we have no uh, clinical trials right now on depression, though. I really appreciate you keeping us tight to the data as uh, you were properly <laughs> trained. Uh, this is Empire. I've got Brianna Altman from the Habits and Lifestyles Lab and Dr. Mallory Laughlin. We're going to take a break now and hear from our sponsors. Thanks so much for tuning in. More Empire coming up once we pay homage to our sponsors. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling, with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at shoogies.com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. Let me welcome Nick Hexum from 311. We've never heard things like your music when it first came out. It's like to mix the reggae with the punk and all of that together was just such an unusual sound and and we loved it. We realized we're not gonna copy what's on the radio. At the time it was all grunge that was on the radio and I said, let's just stick to what we know and wait for a culture to come around to us. Hey, it's Nick Hexum from 311, and you're listening to Cannabis Confidential with Dr. Dina on CannabisRadio.com.
take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. <laughs> they have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing, healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. Fostering health, well-being, and a better living. Welcome back to Hempire, only on CannabisRadio.com. And we're back at Hempire. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine. I've got Brianna Altman from the Habits and Lifestyles Lab and Dr. Mallory Laughlin talking about anxiety, health, women's issues, and what it's like to be a woman in the cannabis world. I really appreciate you guys tuning in. Brianna, Mallory had alluded to some issues with depression. I'm curious uh, if you recall the ayahuasca data on depression. I would have to go back a little bit. I know that I believe um, people found expectancies of sort of ayahuasca alleviating some of the depressive symptoms that people were feeling, and it was related to behavioral activation um, expectancies. So people expected that ayahuasca might um, allow them to do things that they weren't previously doing when they were feeling depressed. I really, yeah, I, I love that finding. It sounded like essentially ayahuasca was an antidepressant in the way some of the depressive psychotherapies work. And so I, of course, always get a big kick out, out of that. And then, Brianna, you have uh, done a whole lot of stuff on CBD individually. Dr. Laughlin, you've alluded to these high CBD doses. Um, I'm curious, what is a stereotypical dose for some kind of trial you might be running? Yeah, actually, and this brings up a really important point, too, that there's a huge disconnect between what we trial and what people use at home. Um, I think folks have already probably heard there's a big reason for that. What we can actually study in the lab is not what you can pick up at your dispensary. I'm stuck with um, NIDA cannabis, so what they've grown, um, you know, it's available for the National Institute of Drug Abuse Drug Supply Program, or uh, cannabinoid pharmaceutical investigational drug. So a lot of what we look at is just ice, pure isolates of CBD or THC. Um, so what I study right now, I've got clinical trials looking at pure CBD in combinations with low doses of THC. And to be able to, because of, I, you know, I mentioned before this idea of bioavailability, how much will actually get through into the blood pass through the blood-brain barrier and act on receptors in the brain, which is important if I'm looking at a psychiatric condition, you need a very high dose. Um, so less than 10% of what you orally ingest is actually going to become bioavailable. And that's, that's a good estimate. That's if like you're a very healthy man with, you know, <laughs> appropriate body fat. Um, so we're talking about doses anywhere from the you know, I typically do around 600 milligrams, but if you look at, at the dialect literature, they're going up into the thousands of milligrams. Most of the time, what you commercially buy, there's not even 500 milligrams in the entire bottle. 
Um, so again, a daily dose of 600 milligrams is typically what we're seeing. There's been the, the uh, most clinical trial data for mood. Um, it's been social anxiety. That's Bergamashi's trials. Um, and those doses were anywhere from three to 900 milligrams. Um, so hundreds of milligrams is usually what we're talking about there versus with THC, it's typically sub intoxicating doses. So we're talking about two to six milligrams of pure THC isolate. Very different than again, what people are using. Usually when people are using CBD, they're using a few milligrams at best, maybe in the tens. Um, and that may be because what they're using does still have some THC in it. Most, you know, hemp derived THC does still have. Um, some trace amounts of THC. And if we think there's a therapeutic signal there at low doses of THC and you're taking hundreds of milligrams of CBD, well, you're going to be getting a couple milligrams of THC. So that could also be what's driving the effect, making it so you don't need to use as high doses as we administer in the lab. We did just have Dr. Andrew Hall on discussing some of that and that entourage opportunity, I think, will probably help some of the absorption and how much you actually get into your system. So I, I'm, I'm eager to get new data on this as, as this stuff wraps out. We had alluded to being a woman in, in the field and uh, we uh, also discussed this PTSD issue. Uh, Dr. Sue Sisley, who spearheaded the cannabis and PTSD work, has actually uh, expressed some real frustration with federally available cannabis products in part because they're so much lower. Dr. Laughlin, have you had comparable experiences? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. So I was actually brought in to help write up the results of that trial. Um, so I'm sure everybody's kind of waiting with bated breath to hear how that one went. And yeah, she was very vocal about um, how difficult it was to get access. And then they actually sent out the samples that they received from NIDA for secondary testing. Um, and the testing did not match even the levels that they were supposed to have gotten. So that's very bad when you're thinking about developing a drug, uh, you know, developing a drug product is consistency is pretty key. Um, you know, I think most of us that are studying therapeutic application at this point really just are not interested in studying the type of cannabis that's available through the NIDA drug supply. For one, we know it genetically does not match. Um, that <laughs> genetically does not match what's currently available on the market. Certainly um, the, the dosing doesn't match what people are using at home. So that's kind of thing one. Thing two, that consistency issue makes it just for a terrible drug product. So, um, you know, in the lab, we need to be much more systematic about what we're actually administering. So that's why we'll look at individual preparations of, you know, cannabinoids that, that we actually have preclinical data are suggestive will be helpful for the condition. You've got uh, Ryan Dandry's group out at Johns Hopkins that's looking at it in combinations with specific terpenes. So just being a lot more systematic about what, what the preparations are. Um, and, you know, I don't know that they're ever going to change allowing us to just administer in the lab what folks are using. Um, but if at least they could let us get access to, um, you know, Cannabis that would be at, at uh, um, kind of medical grade. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens in the future, but I, I'm not holding my breath that they're going to open up access anytime soon. Uh, we do have to get Dr. Vandry on the show because that is an, an intriguing set of issues. When we talk about dosage, I know, Brianna, you've been taking a look at how people sort of estimate their own doses. Could you give us a little feel for that pack and pour protocol? Yeah, absolutely. So basically, we followed a design um, of where we're having people in the lab prepare and pack um, 
alcohol and well alcohol and cannabis products um both of which we're using substitutes for of course and so basically we're having people come into the lab and we're having them estimate what a standard drink would be so pour a standard serving of beer pour a standard serving of wine pour a standard shot and then pour what you'd pour into your own drink and we're doing a parallel task with cannabis products as well so can you pack 0.5 0.5 grams of this substance into a wrapper and can you pack 0.1 grams of this substance into a bowl and then pack what you'd use in a typical product on um, a typical smoking evening for you. And what we're finding is that people are really bad at preparing their own products. Um, so people are grossly overestimating for alcohol how much is in their preferred or I'm sorry, in the standard drink. So you know, a standard shot supposed to be 1.25 ounces and they're pouring about four to six ounces for a standard serving of alcohol. And for marijuana, they're actually underestimating, which is an interesting finding. Um, and it replicates some of the work that Mark Prince put out before that people tend to underestimate their cannabis preparation, which is an interesting finding. Oh, I do get a kick out of that. And we're going to have to take a break just a second here. I Really do wish uh, we could just talk forever, you guys. This is this is super interesting. Hey, it's Dr. Mitch Earlywine. I've got Brianna Altman from the Habits and Lifestyles Lab and Dr. Mallory Laughlin. We're going to be right back. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hempire. More Hempire coming up once we pay homage to our sponsors. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put different celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is Hemping, that's the point Download and play while you light yourself a joint the business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Doc Rob, the concierge for better living. My guests say Razzie Berry. We're talking about nature, naturopathic medicine, as well as the concept of prevention and preventing disease. Empower people to live a naturopathic lifestyle. Get to know your body, understand its rhythms, remove toxins, and use natural alternatives whenever possible. 90 to 95% of cancers are due to environment and lifestyle risk factors. That's a huge number. That means that cancer is preventable. The concierge for better living with Doc Rob. Only on CannabisRadio.com. The National Cannabis Industry Association presents the 2020 Cannabis Caucus Event Series from March 10th through March 26th. Don't miss this exclusive opportunity for NCIA members to network learn about regional issues from influential guest speakers and get the latest news about NCIA's federal policy work and emerging topics. Look for this year's only tour of Cannabis Caucus events coming to Portland, Denver, St. Louis, Detroit, Chicago, Newark, Sacramento, and Los Angeles this March. Stay connected, get informed, and take action to protect our industry and your business. Register now for your complimentary tickets at thecannabisindustry.org slash events. 
fostering health, well-being, and a better living. Welcome back to Hempire, only on CannabisRadio.com. Hey, and we're back. Thanks so much for tuning into Hempire. It's Dr. Mitch Earlywine. I've got Brianna Altman from the Habits and Lifestyles Lab and Dr. Mallory Laughlin. We're discussing a whole bunch of issues in cannabinoids, health, and what it's like to be a woman in this field. I'm eager to make the transition now to sort of other areas of mental health. It looks like, uh, first of all, this notion of being a cannabis problem, a problem cannabis user is kind of an issue. Brianna, do you have any uh, comments on the idea of what is a problematic cannabis user? Yeah, so we're kind of toying with the idea right now of looking at measures and whether or not they're actually assessing what problematic use is and whether or not people are actually endorsing the items that are on the existing measures. So in our undergraduate sample, what we're finding is that people aren't really endorsing high rates of problems, but are likely still problematic users, are still experiencing um, impairment in other domains that maybe we're not necessarily getting at through the existing measures. And so we're toying with the idea of generating a new scale that might be more sensitive to the unique problems of emerging adults that may not be captured by current measures like the marijuana problem scale. hoping to find more items related to things like um, feeling lazy, um, not being able to do your homework, having more interpersonal um, problems with friends that maybe don't amount to sort of items like neglecting your family that currently exists in the measures. And so we're working on figuring out what items might work best for that population. Oh, that's going to be intriguing. And Dr. Laughlin, any thoughts on what makes a problem cannabis user? Yeah, you know, this is actually an interesting question that comes up a lot. Uh, last year, I was out um, in D.C. with a big work group from FDA, and there were folks from NIDA and, and a bunch of cannabis researchers doing um, clinical trials specifically for cannabis use disorder. And the whole aim of the work group was to come to a consensus on what the best measure is to use um, to measure problematic cannabis use for these trials. Spoiler, they came to no consensus. Um, The reason for that is our our kind of gold standard measures at the moment are incredibly face valid, meaning they're questions that ask you, just directly ask you um, whether or not you're meeting kind of criteria for cannabis use disorder in the way we diagnose it in the DSM. That's our diagnostics book. Um, that we use to to diagnose people with with use disorders. And the thing is, you can't really deviate from those questions all that much because actually Mark Shuckett was on the work group for um, revising that the DSM, our diagnostics manual, um, has said, look, we know that the questions for cannabis use, the questions for um, hallucinogens just do not reflect the actual experience of these users. However, we need to keep the questions the same across all substances. So the, the questions that assess cannabis are the same questions that assess alcohol, just rephrased. Um, and, and likewise, they're the same questions that ask if you have a, a use disorder for LSD, um, which we know is going to function very, very differently. Um, and they said, you know, there's just, we do not want to make these different across substances for ease of assessment for clinicians. So it's weird because our, our items, um, you know, the, the folks who actually developed 
the the way we diagnose these will acknowledge the items aren't reflective of the general population. Um, but it just really highlights that it's going to be difficult to change, even if we can't. You know, there's there's actually more than dozens. I think there was like 40 plus assessment measures at this point um, related to assessing cannabis use. But we're all using the same one still. I, I got to admit, I, I have to chuckle at that because what qualifies as a problematic alcohol user is so far from anything in the experience of an allegedly problematic cannabis user, it, it does kind of break my heart that some of this has been so pathologized. We do have to wrap up, but I can't thank you guys enough. It's Brianna Altman from the Habits and Lifestyles Lab and Dr. Mallory Laughlin. I'm really thankful to everybody for tuning in to Hempire. We'll be at the nanosolpro.com link as well as any place you can find your favorite podcast. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Follow your heart and let the data be your guide. expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.